Well, hey, New City, glad to be with you this morning. As I was getting ready for this week's message, I was sad because we were supposed to be gathering uh, physically together to celebrate three years as a church. And although we can't do that uh, with one another this morning, uh, the reason that we started three years ago was to make much of Jesus and help as many people as possible meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with Him. And so while things look different and while we have to uh, meet virtually for now, that mission of what Jesus has done is still going forward. And so I want to begin by sharing a story uh, this morning. It involves Sherlock Holmes and his trusty sidekick, Dr. Watson. And this story takes place when they decide to go camping one evening. And after dinner and a bottle of wine, uh, they settle down for the evening and fall asleep. A few hours later, uh, Sherlock Holmes wakes up, and he's startled, and so he nudges his friend, Dr. Watson, and he says, Watson, wake up and look up at the sky and tell me what you see. And so Watson replied to Holmes by saying, well, Holmes, I see millions of stars in the sky. And Holmes is kind of agitated, and so he responds by saying, okay, but what does that tell you, Watson? And so Watson thought for a minute, and he said this back to Holmes. He said, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of stars. Uh, Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Uh, uh, Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful, and that we are small and insignificant. Uh, Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? And after a minute, Holmes was silent, then looks at Watson and says, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. And, And I share that story because everything that Watson said was true, but he missed the point. Right, the tent that they were sleeping under was no longer there. And I share that story because we're going to be looking at this question this morning. And that is, why should we trust in Jesus? Why should you and I actually trust and follow Jesus? Now, if you're not a Christian, you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, you're probably thinking that's a great question. And if you are a follower of Christ, you might think of many good reasons. You might say, well, because he loves us. Uh, because he created everything, uh, because he cares for us, uh, so that we can go to heaven when we die. You might, might, might say a lot of things that are good, but what is the, the primary reason? What is the real reason, the big reason above all the rest of why you and I should actually trust and follow Jesus? That is what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue our series in Colossians. And so we'll be in Colossians uh, chapter 1 this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and flip there. If not, the verses will be on the screen in a second. Let me give you some context of where we were. Last week, we began this book. It was written by the Apostle Paul around 62 AD, so about 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's in jail in Rome. Uh, Epaphras, who had planted the church in Colossae, had come to visit Paul. And so Paul is writing a letter to Epaphras to bring back to the Colossians to essentially encouraging them to continue to stay focused on the gospel and to grow in spiritual maturity. And so last week we looked at the first uh, 12 verses and kind of Paul's introduction and uh, just kind of uh, speaking to them and telling them how he's grateful for them. And then in verse 9 he begins this prayer. And so we're going to pick up the prayer again in verse 12, a few verses in, and here's what he says beginning in verse 12. So he's thankful for them and their faith, and he continues by saying this. He says, he's giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance and the light. So he's giving thanks to God the Father who has enabled the Colossians, and not just the Colossians, but all believers to share in the saints' inheritance in 
the light. And I want to re- revisit this verse as we begin this morning to set us up for what Paul, where Paul is going over these next few verses. Why is Paul giving thanks to the Father? What he's doing here and what we're going to see is that Paul is evoking imagery of the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt, as we're going to see in these next few verses. And what he's telling them What he's telling believers is that their inheritance, your inheritance, my inheritance, if we are in Christ, is even better than the promised land inheritance that was coming to the Israelites as they left Egypt. It's even better now because it's not just a physical space on earth, but it's God's kingdom, and it is open to everyone regardless of racial ethnicity or background or where you live. And what he's saying here is that God through Christ is making this inheritance possible for you and for me. And so we give thanks. Verse 13, he says, He, talking about Jesus, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What he's saying here is that God through Christ has rescued us. He is, Jesus is, the true son of Israel that offers perfect obedience. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know the Israelites were often failing time and time again. And there was uh, the the people of Israel, and not even a single person could actually live up uh, to perfect obedience to God. And what he's saying here is that Jesus is the true Israel. This is why in Matthew chapter 2, when uh, Matthew is writing about the birth of Jesus, he's quoting the prophet Hosea. And he's talking about this idea that Jesus is the true Israel. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 2. This is after uh, Jesus has been born, the shepherds have visited, the wise men have visited. Jesus is probably somewhere around two years of age. Uh, Then it says this in verse 13. It says, After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child, talking about Jesus here, the child, and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So Herod was the ruler of uh, the province that they were living in at the time, and he had set this edict out to kill all young boys two years old and younger. And so because he's trying to stamp out the Messiah, and so this angel says, no, you guys need to go and flee to Egypt so that Jesus will be safe. Verse 14, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and the chi- or during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Again, Jesus is the true Israel who did for us what nobody could do for themselves. This is why in verse 15, which we'll read in just a second, uh, uh, we're going to stumble upon this poem. Uh, that Paul has written, and it's really one of the most beautiful expressions of who Jesus is in all of Scripture. And what we're going to see here is that what God was saying in reference to Israel all throughout the uh, Old Testament, Yahweh, Yahweh God, the God, uh, the one true God, is now referencing and saying and speaking these things over Jesus himself. And to be clear here, this is not to say that Jesus is kind of displacing the God of the Old Testament or the God of the Hebrew Bible. He's not displacing them, uh, but what he's doing is he's making himself known through Jesus. So to be clear, if you're a Jewish listener to this letter, what you would be picking up on is not that you are supposed to abandon your Jewish doctrine or your belief, but instead you are to redefine everything you have learned and believed in the fulfillments of Christ. That Christ is fulfilling for us, for everyone, for the Israelites, 
what we could not do for ourselves. This is why N.T. Wright, who is in his commentary on the Colossians, says it this way. He says, the redemption achieved in Christ is indeed the new genesis, right? It's the new creation. The church really is the new humanity, and he'll talk about that more in Colossians chapter 3. And so what he's saying here is that the Jews learned more fully who their God was when he redeemed them from Egypt. So they'd heard about this one true God, but they experienced him more fully in the Exodus and as they traveled through the wilderness. In the same way, the world may now learn through the gospel the full truth about God who made it. That now you and I get to actually see God on full display through Jesus. In other words, here's the point as we look at this text this morning. That Jesus has always been plan A. Jesus has always been plan A. This wasn't a, oh, things aren't working out, so i got to come up with another idea. I didn't know people were going to be sinful and not obey me, and so let's just maybe come in the form of Jesus and fix everything. Jesus has always been plan A. And if anything, one of the things we see in the Old Testament, and it's God's grace to us, is it shows us that we can't save ourselves, right? We can't live up to God's perfect standard. Uh, we, we do not always choose what's best and what's loving and what is right. And so we need a Savior to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And it was always God's plan to send Jesus. I like to think of it this way. If you listened to the sermon last week, I shared with you in detail my proposal to my wife, Christina. And I won't rehash it here now, but basically what had happened was she knew that I was going to propose, right? And so I had the challenge of trying to make it uh, be surprised her, even though she knew it was happening. So for example, the night before we were supposed to go to the fancy dinner and everything like that, I changed it. I said, well, actually something else has come up. Let's go in a couple days instead. Now that was always the plan, but I wanted her to think, well, he's not proposing now because he's changing the plan. And then the, the date came, and we went to this nice dinner, and we were going to go to a movie. And then I had her friend call Christina freaking out, needing help, uh, because she thought she had locked herself in a room. And so, again, that was the plan the whole time. But it was making Christina assume, oh, he's clearly not proposing because things aren't going the way that they would probably go if he was going to propose. Now, that's not the perfect analogy because Jesus does not trick us into believing and to trusting in him. But the whole time, the plan was for me to Christina for, to, to propose to my wife on a Friday night at the church that I was planning to propose to her at. But I had to do things, and maybe in the moment she thought things were being changed and things were not going as they were supposed to. The point, again, is that Jesus has always been plan A, always been the Redeemer, the one who is going to come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so with that, we begin this kind of a poem of this Messiah, of who Jesus is. And verse 15, here's how it begins. It says, He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So he is this invisible God who has now been made visible to us. And I want to be clear on something that might be kind of confusing. When it says here, when Paul says here that Jesus is the firstborn, he's not referring to Jesus as being created, as if God the Father was kind of up there doing his thing, and then he decides to send Jesus to save us, and so he creates Jesus so that Jesus could come. That's not what's happening here. We're going to see that in the following verses. Instead, what Paul's point is that Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that the inheritance that goes to a typical firstborn child, particularly in this culture, is going to Jesus, right? That he is going to have the inheritance and the promises and the fulfillment of a firstborn child is coming to Christ. In other words, that Jesus will ultimately reign and rule. He's the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, it 
For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So again, Jesus has always existed because God through Christ created everything. And not only did he created, create everything, but that everything that was created was ultimately for him. In other words, that he is the creation or he's the agent of creation, but he's also the goal. He created everything. What was it created for? It was created for him, which means this, particularly in our culture today, here's what we need to understand, that life is not about you. Life is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about my family. It's not about my friends. It's not about anyone other than Jesus. He is the creator. He is the king. He is the God over everything. It is about him. Now, this is actually good news for us, right? It's good news for us because it means that everything is not dependent on us, that everything is not about us and what we do, and, and God's mercy and grace for us. If God created everything, then that means the ultimate source of joy and love can be only found in Him. And so when He invites us into a relationship with Him, as He invites us to follow Him, He doesn't do it to restrict us or to hold us back. He does it so that we can actually experience true life, which we will see on full display when we are in his kingdom. Life is not about you. And it makes me think, especially with everything that's going on with the coronavirus, if I'm being completely honest with you, as I was reflecting particularly this week, I was thinking, of course, why? Why is it that I want the coronavirus pandemic to end? Yes, I want people to be healthy. Uh, Yes, I want this economic impact to end. I know a lot of people have been impacted. As you're listening to this, you may have lost a job or have seen significant decrease in your finances or maybe losing a job soon. Like there's all these terrible reasons why we want it to end. But then I'm also thinking, could it be that part of the reason I'm getting anxious and part of the reason I want this to be over is simply so that my life can go back to the way that it was? because I want to be comfortable, because I want things to go the way that I want them to go. Yes, I care about people, and yes, I care about their physical health and their financial well-being, but how much of me wanting this to be done is simply because I want life to be the way that I want it? Could it be that Jesus is using this to shape us and to show us things about him that we could never have experienced or seen otherwise, but in our attempt to make life just about us and what we want, we're missing what God is doing because we are forgetting that life is not about us. It's about him. And so with that, we continue. Here's what Paul says next in verse 17. It says he, again, talking about Jesus here. He created all things. And then it says he is before all things. And by him, all things hold together. So he creates them and then he holds them together. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything, in everything. In other words, Christ is not only the creator, but he's also the sustainer, that he is the resurrection and the exaltation when Christ came and defeated sin and death, that he publicly showed us the status that he has always held, that supreme king and ruler over everything. And and what is happening when Jesus came to earth lived his perfect life, and defeated death on the cross and resurrected again, as he has now been placed first uh, physically among us, that he is now the head of the church of those who 
believe. In other words, that we follow and trust in him because he is king and he is the head of the body of the believers. You think of it like this. What this means for us is that following Jesus is not going to make you wealthy, right? Following Jesus does not mean bad things will not happen to you. Following Jesus does not mean you're going to necessarily be healthy. What we see all throughout Scripture is that the message of Scripture and the gospel of Christ is that not in following him, everything goes well for you. What we see is that even when things do not go the way that we want them to go, he is enough. He is enough no matter what happens. That's the message of the gospel. Not that everything is going to be okay. The message of the gospel is this, that Jesus is over everything. That he is over your family, he is over your job, he is over your physical well-being, he is over uh, our church, he is over everything that you know and see and own and possess and come in contact with. He is over everything. And what makes the gospel so amazing is not just that Jesus is king, but also that he cares, that he cares for us that he is over everything, that he has everything in the, in the palm of his hand, if you will. And yet, because he is supreme and king and all-knowing and all-powerful, he's not too busy or too distracted for you and for me. It's not as if he has so much going on and the coronavirus and he's kind of freaking out about this that he still, at the individual level, can't see and care for us where we are. He's so vast and mighty and powerful that nothing is too big for him, nothing distracts him, that he can be over everything and still individually be over our lives. See, the good news about us not life not being about us, instead about Christ, who is over everything, is that even when everything is going the way we may not want it to go, that he is still working. I love what John Piper says. He's a pastor and theologian. He puts it this way: that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may only be aware of three of them, right? And so what can happen, and you know this as you look over the course of your life, you can see things where God was working and God was moving, and you had no idea at the time, but then after the fact, you're so thankful. Like, let me just give you a practical example. The past six months or so, Christine and I have been looking to move, and so we've been looking at houses, and we want to be in a very specific part of Raleigh. Of course, we want to be where close to where our new city's physical location is because we want to be in our community. And so we've seen houses and nothing's really worked out. And so it's been frustrating. We even put an offer on a house about four months ago and didn't get it. And, you know, you were discouraged at that time. And now now seeing what's happening in the world with this coronavirus pandemic and not showing how it's going to affect us financially and all these things, we are really grateful we had not moved. Right? We are really grateful that God had saved us from that, right? There are so many things in our lives that we have no idea in the moment what God is doing, right? If you've been with us this year, we spent the first 10 weeks of 2020 uh, in the book of Esther, right? In the book of Esther, what the whole book of Esther is that God was moving even when we don't see it. And, And I share that to say this, that if God is over everything in our lives that we can't even begin to comprehend what he is doing, then who are we to tell him what he is supposed to do? Who are we to tell God how he should and should not operate when we have no idea the vastness of what he's doing? Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that we can't question God, but there's two ways of questioning God, just like there's two ways of questioning anybody. There's the God crying out, God, why are you doing this? God, I don't understand. God, please help me. Give me faith. Help me in my doubts. I don't get it, right? And that's where many of us are. 
But there's also an arrogant way of asking questions where you can say, God, why are you doing this? But we're asking in an in in accusatory sense. Like we have an idea of what he should actually do. And so we should cry out and we should ask God and we should say, God, would you please make this pandemic go away? God, what are you doing? That's perfectly fine. But let us not ask it arrogantly as if we have some odd idea of how this perfect and benevolent king of the universe should operate. God is always doing 10,000 things in our lives, and we may be aware of only three. That is how great he is. And so we continue with what Paul says next in verse 19. Because he's first placing everything, he's over everything. It then says this, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That God was pleased to have all the fullness of Christ of God dwell in Christ. Now, the literal translation of fullness dwell is kind of kind of rocky in English, and so that's why they have fullness dwell. But here's what he's actually saying. He's actually basically saying that God is taking up permanent residence in Christ. And again, this is supposed to invoke this Old Testament imagery of God filling the temple or the tabernacle with his presence. Like that is where God resided. And what we see in Jesus is that Jesus not only bears God's glory, but that God dwells in him, that he is God's reflection. He is the invisible God made visible for us, right? The fullness, the permanent, uh, the permanent residence of God dwells in Christ. And so again, verse 19, for God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In other words, everything will be brought under Jesus's authority. And the invitation is to, for us, for you and for me, to know God as our friend and as our Savior. Right? For evil and demonic powers and those who reject him, they will one day be defeated by King Jesus, because he is over everything, so that they can no longer bring any harm. When Jesus returns a second time and reestablishes his kingdom, evil and suffering will no longer be, the demonic will no longer be, because he is bringing everything to himself. This is why he came. This is the gospel, right? The gospel is not about you. It's about the supreme, the supreme goodness of God coming to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. The gospel is that Jesus is over all and yet loves you and I right where we are. In the midst of our doubts and our questions and our pains and our hangups and when we blow it, when we, don't, when we fall short of who God is, that God is there and he's inviting us to know him. As we read this kind of the supremacy of Jesus in this passage, we're supposed to be encouraged and take heart that this supreme king loves us and gave his life for us so that anybody, man, woman, or child, anybody, no matter where you live, anybody, no matter what has been done to you, can experience and receive the goodness of who he is, even in the midst of our doubts, that he is the creator, sustainer of everything, and even our souls. And so verse 21, it says this, once you were alienated and hostile, so before Christ came, you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So again, his physical body, his, de- his life, his death, and his burial, and his resurrection has presented anybody in Christ righteous and blameless. And so Paul is writing to the Colossians, and by extension, all believers 
that we were alienated from God, that you and I were far from God, and we saw that in how we lived and in our actions. But Christ has provided a way of reconciliation, that Christ has provided a way for us to be reconciled into a relationship with God, that you and I can actually be holy and blameless. Again, this is the Old Testament sacrificial language, that you would be holy and blameless, not because of you, but because of him and what he has done for us. And so because of that, verse 23, the last part of Colossians we'll read this morning, it says this, here's how we can experience this this holiness, this blameless, this righteousness of Christ. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. In other words, he's saying if you remain grounded and place your faith and trust in Christ, all of Christ's inheritance and blessings will come to you. Now, he's, not, he's saying this not in the sense of you better do this or else. He's saying this in the sense of he has no doubt that they will continue to strive and follow Jesus. Because here's what we know, right? It's important for us to continue to follow him because a counterfeit faith is a faith that gets really excited about Jesus, but then decides to kind of go their own ways. And make sure your faith is true, and you will know this by continued, continued trust in him. Because the reality is God will never turn his back on you. And so he's inviting us not to turn our back on him. And if I could kind of bring this, give you the answer to the question that we began this morning, why? Oh, there's lots of reasons we should follow and trust in Christ. Why, in the best of my ability, can I sum this up of the best reason why you and I should do it? And here's what I would say, that Jesus will always be king. Jesus will always be king. He was king before you and I ever existed. He is king now, and he is king in the future. There will never be someone else to take his thrones. And so we trust in the one who is powerful and strong and over all things. He will always be king. That means that you will not be the ruler of, over everything, your family, your job, your health. Nobody you know will ever take his place. And so we follow him because he is a good and righteous and holy and blameless king who laid down his life for us so we can experience who he is. The last verse I read is one of my favorites in all of Scripture is in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And the background behind this verse is that Peter and John have essentially been arrested again by their religious leaders, and they want him, them to stop talking about this resurrection of Jesus, right? And they're gonna, they want to maybe even kill them. They want to throw them in jail. They want to beat. They want to do all these things to them. And so they, you cannot stop. You have to stop doing this. And Peter's response uh, to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish religious leaders who have them in jail is this that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else, not in your family, not in your financial situation, not in your health, not in anything else but Jesus. Again, Jesus will always be king, which is why there is no hope in anything or anyone else other than him. And so again, today, we were supposed to gather together. We had a lot of fun things planned to celebrate three years together. And so it's bittersweet. It's bittersweet to be in an empty room and to be recording this onto your TV instead of physically gathering together. But the, that's, that's what's bitter about this. But the sweet part is that the mission of Jesus does not change, that Jesus will always be king. And our mission at New City Church is to help people meet Jesus 
and grow in a relationship with him. And I want you to know that you are playing a part in that, that what you are doing and how you give generously and how you serve one another and how you care for one another is making this happen. And so to that end, we have a video that we want to share with you as we celebrate three years together.